Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that the Steroid to CEO podcast has joined forces with Future Commerce, the number one podcast in e-commerce. We're combining forces to bring you the most insightful and relevant content in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. We're launching new content every week starting in July, and I don't want you to miss it. So subscribe to Steroid to CEO right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's take your business to the next level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 10 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we have an insightful episode with Brian Ree, co-founder and CEO of Daily Look. Daily Look is a personal styling service that sends you a box of hand-picked fashion items right to your door every month. In this interview, Brian shares with us how he started his first business at 15 years old, created and then sold a newsletter with over 450,000 subscribers to a poker company and then raised over $11 million to build his company Daily Look. Brian uncovers the challenges he faced from pivoting his business and shares some really important red flags he looks out for when he's hiring. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. You can also reach out to us at stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Lee. You're welcome. I'm excited to share your story in building Daily Look. Uh, let's get started from the very beginning. Where are you from? Where were you born? So I'm a Los Angeles native. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I uh, grew up in La Cañada, which is near Pasadena and Glendale. Awesome. Cool. So what was childhood like for you? Did you have any siblings? Uh, yeah, just me and one younger brother. Okay. How many years are you guys apart? Uh, four years. Nice. And so growing up, what were you like as a kid? How would you describe it? Describe yourself. Uh, I mean, I think I had a pretty typical childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what were you into? Did you play any sports? Uh, I played baseball and uh, tennis. Cool. Uh, I was better at tennis, not so good at baseball. <laughs> Were you entrepreneurial at all? Yeah, I'd say so. Actually, uh, my first business I actually started when I was, I think around 15 years old mm-hmm. and it was called Exceed Tutorial Services. Uh, this was in high school and there were some, you know, other friends that had worked at local uh, pizza shops and stuff, but I had felt like, you know, for the amount of hours that they would work, they weren't making enough money and I wanted a little more flexibility. So I actually, um, convinced 
a lot of the uh essentially the the top students in my grade to get together and you know work for me under this business called exceed tutorial services um and it was it was a fun project we had uh a, a you know we had beepers back then <laughs> so we didn't have any cell phones so we had to get a dedicated beeper and a voicemail set up uh for people that would call and we essentially went around the neighborhood printed out i think about 3000 flyers and we dropped them off all over the neighborhood to uh get students to tutor that's amazing so you got a few buddies to sign up as your tutors mm -hmm. and then you sent out these flyers and so what was the response on the flyers so there there was a, actually some interesting learnings there uh you know, we, we got quite a good response on the flyers from certain parts of the neighborhood. Uh, there were other parts of the neighborhood where we got zero responses. And the very big mistake we made is we had actually put these flyers inside of mailboxes instead of like on the front door or outside. And only the post office can actually deliver mail into your mailbox. And so there were parts of the neighborhood where we had put a thousand flyers in mailboxes, which then got pulled by the, you know, the postman delivering real mail. Oh no! And we only realized this after, like maybe two weeks later, where uh, I got a notice or a call saying that essentially it's illegal to <laughs> deliver anything into a private mailbox unless you're the post office. So you were breaking rules early on. Unknowingly, yes, and that's when we learn that, you know, you really had to be thoughtful and strategic about how you're marketing because essentially there was a whole bunch of effort and work that we, we put in these marketing flyers that yielded no results because we essentially didn't know the rules. That's funny. So your parents, when they heard that you got in trouble, were they mad at you or how did they respond? Were they entrepreneurs as well? You know, I don't think they even knew what I was up to regarding uh, that business or four way, they just knew that I was tutoring. And so they thought that that was sounding like a good job. And they thought that I got referrals from, uh, you know, just friends in the neighborhood. Uh, mm -hmm. but I did get a, essentially like a full time after, uh, after school hours gig tutoring, I think back then making 20 to $25 an hour, which was like two and a half. No, maybe three to four X what I would have made uh, had I worked at like the local pizza shop. Yeah, that's awesome. So how big did this business get in high school that you were building? Uh, it wasn't very big. It was probably me and uh, four people that were, you know, employed via tutoring. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't, for example, making any money off of uh, friends that were also working under this umbrella, it was more of a joint effort to be able to uh, sort of advertise our services and mm -hmm. find students. Nice. And so when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually always wanted to be an entrepreneur, believe it or not. Really? I was always into, yeah, I was always into tinkering and thinking about new um, ideas and new businesses um, from a pretty early age. Mm -hmm. say. 
So at what point do you remember that moment when you were a kid that you're like, this is what I want to be when I grow up? Like, where did that come from? What inspired you to think that so young? You know, to be honest, I don't remember, uh, you know, in high school, I thought that a lot of the new technology that was coming out was really cool. When mm -hmm. I really think back on it, uh, I remember AOL dial up and thinking that was a really cool way to communicate with people. Mm -hmm. I was in the chat rooms of friends and stuff, but my parents actually didn't get me a modem in high school. So I had to go to a friend's house to use dial up AOL. But even then I would be sort of experimenting with different types of software. Like there was different, I wouldn't call them hacking tools, but they were to sort of wreak havoc on AOL chat rooms. I think right. it was at one that was called AOL hell. And it was like a software that would allow you to kick out people you didn't like and um, get into chat rooms that were full and do all sorts of like tricks uh -huh. uh, in chat rooms. And so just thought that that was just fun and different. Cool. So you were like, I want to work with technology. Yeah. And then when I went, when I got to college, so I went to uh, UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And when I got to college, that was actually when my mind was blown, like, like really blown because you went from, you know, 56K dial up modems to a T1. Mm -hmm. And that's when there was um, Napster running and all of these music, peer-to-peer uh, -peer services. Um, and so that was really exciting because just the speed and, and what you could do with that bandwidth was phenomenal. Yeah. Were you studying computer science? No, actually, I went in just uh, to the liberal arts um, program. And uh, sophomore year, I applied to uh, the business school program, which is Haas there. And you apply junior year, and I got into that track. Awesome. Did you have any jobs or did you start any businesses when you were in school? Or did you keep the tutoring business going? No, I couldn't keep the tutoring business going. <laughs> uh, that business, one, didn't scale. And two, it, you know, it, I was one of the people actually tutoring. I wasn't really managing a business per se. In college, I remember actually that's when I, that's when the internet was really booming. Like internet 1.0 was booming and all these dot-coms uh, we're raising tons of money. I remember like Webvan was a spectacular boom and bust. And there were just so many companies that were going, uh, you know, IPO with really nothing more than, you know, a few customers. So it was, it was a crazy, exciting time. And having access to really fast internet, I was definitely into wanting to start an online business and, and sort of get in on the rush. I didn't really know how because obviously I was in school. So one of my high school friends and I, his family had been in the jewelry business here in downtown LA. And we're like, hey, why don't we just set up an online store, an e-com store and start selling jewelry? Mm -hmm. But this was fine jewelry, like gold jewelry, wedding bands and rings. And it was in 1999. And so it was really, really early where nobody was selling it. And so all of our friends and family all discouraged us because they were like, this is a dumb idea. Who's going to buy jewelry? People were hardly putting in credit cards at that time to yeah. buy stuff. 
other than things like lower price stuff like books. But we said, well, it might not work, but we're in college. We're just ex experimenting and we don't have to put up a lot of money to do this since, you know, his family had a supply of jewelry. So we said, we'll just turn it into a project just to, to learn at yeah. the very least. And so that's how we started ideating that through college. And that was, it was great that we had some sort of specific idea because for any school project, like let's say we had a business plan project or business case um, project or class, we had, you know, a business idea that we could use and focus on and have other students help in fleshing out the business plan. And so that's essentially how we, we developed our first business plan. Mm -hmm. And we just kept working on it here and there. And eventually we actually launched the business after we graduated what in it 2001. It was called goldenmine.com. Nice. And how'd it do? How'd it go? So the first year, I mean, it went, it definitely went really well. We learned a ton. It, we were literally processing credit cards, transactions using a modem. So we had one phone line and we had to literally go offline to charge our credit cards and batch process them. Um, but, you know, we started out with maybe a dozen or so orders a day and it was, it was working great because at that time, this was even before AdWords, it was initially called go, goto.com and then Overture, which was like paid per click search marketing. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the bids for keywords for Julie were under 10 cents. So you could literally buy really qualified search intent driven traffic for less than 10 cents a click. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, some people were buying, yeah. taking that risk, <laughs> you know? So I think the biggest challenge back then was for us to convey via our website that we were selling real gold, not filled or, or plated. And it was authentic and it was real and it was high quality. It was coming direct from downtown Los Angeles, Jewelry Mart. It was really a direct-to-consumer business yeah. uh, back in 2000. And, uh, and the business really just took off. We didn't put any money into it other than building a really nice-looking, credible website. And mm -hmm. I think that's where we made the right investment because back then, most of the websites looked like, I don't know if you remember tripod or homestead they looked like very basic html right exactly and we put a lot of design into it to make it look uh to look really professional and beautiful nice what's um one of the key takeaways from that business that you may have taken with you to today so that's a great question that business ultimately became a great small lifestyle business mm -hmm. so it didn't become a large business but it became a great uh, lifestyle business. We were the first jewelry brand that was invited when Amazon was delving into third party mm. uh, sellers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a very strong niche. We'd been in the, we'd been in Google for so long that we ranked really well for a lot of top jewelry keywords. That said, I think the business became less and less profitable over the next decade because, you know, it really got commoditized. It got commoditized, I think, in two ways. One, the product we were selling was non-branded, didn't have a particular brand point of view or a lifestyle point of view. Mm -hmm. 
So it was like gold wedding bands, for example, uh, a commodity. And then the second area was that Google's prices are obviously not 10 cents a click anymore. They're well above a dollar. And so you had the pressures of uh, online marketing costs from competition driving up the costs. Gold actually cost, uh, the price of gold was $250 an ounce uh, when we started the business. And it went up to, at its peak, over $2,000 an ounce. Wow. So we had a lot of gross margin pressure increase. And so those two sides really squeezed the business where, you know, in the latter years, it became much more challenging and it wasn't a cash cow like it was when we first started. And and so I think the key takeaways uh, over time was make sure you're not in a business that can be easily commoditized, that you have real long-term sustainable competitive advantages and that you build a unique differentiated brand experience. Definitely. Those are good tips of advice. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. So how long did you work on this business and what happened? What did you do after college? Did you focus on the business full time? Yeah, I did. I said I would take one year to try it uh, post-college and see what happens. And I'm like, well, if it doesn't work out, that's fine. I'll get a job after a year. And the business took off and did really well. So I ended up uh, being involved and be, well leading that business for the next uh, six years post-college and then ended up exiting that business uh, through my partner whose uh, family bought me out. Mm-hmm. Then I had a, a side hobby actually that was, you know, playing online poker. That was something that I picked up with friends during college actually for fun and I had started a online poker newsletter, like a strategy newsletter. Mm-hmm. And within two years, that had actually grown to uh, 450,000 uh, engaged active subscribers. And so it was really the largest third party or independent subscriber list of like online poker players at that time. And online poker was really hot from. I'd say from 2000 to 2005, that was like the golden era where they were spending lots of money advertising on ESPN. Like you couldn't watch an ESPN break without multiple online poker uh, advertisements. So that was a really good digital business that I had started. Really, it was just myself and eventually I ended up hiring a few people for for content, but it was a great business because it didn't require a lot of people, didn't require you know, a lot of upkeep and there was a lot of, you know, relative scale to it. Awesome. So you had this booming newsletter um, and you were playing online poker and what kind of happened next? Were you making money from that? Was that something that you were able to, you know, you were thinking about building out as like a business or was that just kind of a hobby and you started something else? Uh, So it started out as a hobby. I didn't 
I mean, it, it, it wasn't intended to be like a big business. It was like a hobby of something that I enjoyed. And I thought that I could put a unique twist to it. But once it grew into a big business, well, I wouldn't say a big business, but a very good lifestyle business, it was a very good time because at that time, like poker companies were paying uh, $250 to $300 per player that you would refer. And so it was a great business model because these poker companies would then provide exclusive tournaments. Let's say they'd put up $10,000 to throw a tournament that would be exclusive to my subscribers. And I would have uh, anywhere from two to three tournaments a month, which would basically be password protected where they would get the password the day of the tournament or a few days before the tournament. Mm -hmm. And that would attract a lot of new customers to essentially sign up to these various poker sites. That's awesome. So how long did you do that? Uh, so I did that business for two years. Then at that point, the U.S. government actually started shutting down and regulating a lot of these overseas poker sites. Like, for example, the, the first shoe dropped when Party Poker abruptly pulled out of the U.S. market, like literally overnight. And then all these other people started following suit. There were some holdouts like full tilt poker uh, that kind of gave the finger to the government and said, we're going to, we're not, we can't be jurisdicted by the U.S. We're based out of Ireland, so we're going to continue servicing. And so at that point, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and, and was like, okay, I should probably not focus too heavily on, on this business. So, so within, I think, six months of that happening, I actually sold the newsletter to full tilt poker since they were pretty much one of the only few large brands mm -hmm. in the space that were still operating in the U.S. And I didn't frankly know how long they were going to last either. Yeah, that's awesome. So you kind of sold your first company a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And then so what happened next? Were you like, I'm going to work for someone now? Or were you like, never, I'm never going to work for someone ever. I'm already an entrepreneur. Um, I'm going to stay on this track. Yeah. So it wasn't ever about like not working for someone else. I actually, you know, in hindsight, I actually would recommend working. Uh, there's so many great companies and people that you can work with and work for mm -hmm. that as an entrepreneur, I actually wouldn't have minded having spent some years working for, you know, either under a great leadership team or a great company. Um, I think there's a lot to be gained in experience from working with great teams and great people. I agree with you completely. And I, I completely 100% would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think going back for myself and trying to say that to myself at that time, I was so eager, you know, I'm so entrepreneurial. I still would have made the same decisions I've made, which is was to not really work for anyone else. So going back, telling yourself, giving yourself that advice, do you think you would have taken it? I think if it came from the right person, I think I could have taken it or would have taken it. So for example, if, if it came from my parents, then they maybe not so much, like maybe I wouldn't have listened as much. Right. Because I have fairly, you know, traditional uh, Korean parents where, you know, they would have probably preferred me to have been, you know, a working professional. But no, if I, if I had the right mentor or the right person, I think definitely I would have taken it in and been thoughtful and considered it seriously. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that I would say, like during that time, in hindsight, I feel like I didn't have, you know, trusted, strong, experienced mentors around me. I kind of just trailblazed and decided that I would just figure it out 
yeah. on the go. And, and for the most part, I did. But I'm sure I would have made less mistakes mm-hmm. and maybe even made some different, you know, career or entrepreneurial choices had I had, you know, more access to, to mentors. So I definitely yeah. recommend uh, having and sur- surrounding yourself with as much experienced mentors as possible. Yeah, I agree. So where do you think that trailblazing mentality comes from? I think most entrepreneurs have, I think it's more innate than external. Like, I I don't think, like, I can't describe my parents particularly as as trailblazing per se. Um, And when I've studied like other entrepreneurs as well, or, or you read about them, it doesn't particularly seem like you know, other like renowned entrepreneurs, like, I mean, really successful ones like Zuckerberg and Bezos have had like trailblazing parents per se. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I'm yeah. always so curious where that comes from. You know, is it, you know, an older sibling thing? Is it a uh, parents, you know, that I don't know. It's kind of, it's such a crazy uh, dynamic. Of yeah. What? I think it's, I mean, out of all the entrepreneurs and, and I love you know, and I've loved reading and learning about other entrepreneurs and their journeys. So I am an avid reader of almost every entrepreneur that I can think of that's well known. I mean, there's no there's no particular pattern that I've seen around like trailblazing other than there is a little element of sort of rebelliousness or mischievousness in, in tinkering and building or mm-hmm. trying things mm-hmm. um, that I've seen. I've read that about Bill Gates and obviously Steve Jobs and Wozniak, um, you know, obviously Zuckerberg. Like they've all, even in the early ages, mm-hmm. demonstrated sort of on their own time, tinkering with innovation or or things that maybe at that particular young age, most teenagers or kids aren't doing. Right. They're into maybe other things or maybe they kind of like, oh, well, it's not possible. And they kind of just like don't push to see if it is actually possible. Yeah. I mean, and if I think in this day and age, like, sure, most kids are probably doing what their friends are doing, like playing Fortnite, but, or, or something like that. But, mm-hmm. but if a kid is tinkering and with and building robots or coding things i think that's a little bit different but it's hard to get someone that young to really be passionate interested to spend all their time doing that yeah i think one thing about entrepreneurs is you've seen i've seen from an earlier age a lot of passion for tinkering on their own like it's just yeah. something that that they just innately like to do yeah. And it's not like their parents trying to get them to tinker or be <laughs> yeah. uh, mischievous or, or, or whatnot. Yeah. It's, it's kind of this and to take it one step further, because tinkering can kind of, in my mind, think, I think of, you know, um, building things with your hands or, you know, um, building things with software or something just like building either physically. Um, I think it's also more so creative problem solving at a very young age. And how many kids maybe get into that position of creative problem solving and how they, you know, I think that's really where entrepreneurs like come from is if they're doing that from an early age and then they continue to do that throughout. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. I mean, having built things, there's constant creative problem solving at all steps. Yeah. And you really have to love 
both the uncertainty and the problem solving part and the challenge, yeah, the challenge and getting sort of the satisfaction and fulfillment of seeing, you know, constantly solving problems and seeing sort of the progress and the building of what you're attacking. Right. And seeing it come to fruition and being like, that was really freaking cool. I want to do that again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So you sold this company, the um, newsletter you had um, for the online poker. And then, so what did you do after that? So after that, I took a couple years, essentially tinkering a few ideas. And then I eventually landed on my current business, which is Daily Look. Really, I think the problem that I set out to solve was to make it easier for someone to, you know, style themselves or get the look. Mm-hmm. You know, the problem that I, I had personally is, you know, you see all these nice magazines for men. It might be GQ or details. It would show this like really cool look and it's like, get the look and it's all designer pieces, incredibly expensive. You'd have to go to like five different stores to buy it. And, you know, I also saw that trend of female bloggers, like fashion bloggers, starting to really um, make an impact. Mm -hmm. What year was this? This was in 2011. Mm -hmm. And I thought there's so much product out there. And ultimately, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, you're not trying to buy a thousand different items of clothing. You just want to really get the look and get the right pieces that you want and coordinate them into an awesome style. So that was kind of the idea that I wanted to run with that I thought was, you know, made a lot of sense in being able to solve. And I thought that wasn't a good experience or a good way to do that. And so initially when I started Day Look, it was really about like, how do we put together a look, one look a day and sell you transactionally this look, this head to toe look. Think of it as like a woot for looks, like one click and you can just get the whole look. Interesting. So how did you come up with the name Daily Look? So at the time, it was a daily newsletter. I knew newsletters from my (laughs) poker business. I thought, okay, I'll send out one newsletter a day. This is sort of the outfit of the day or the OOTD. Mm -hmm. And it'll be really simple. It'll be one look a day styled by a stylist, and you can hit one click and purchase the look. Then we had a website which would sort of mimic that um, that business model where every day it would refresh with a new look of the day. Awesome. And so that's kind of how originally we, we came out with Daily Look and the name. Fast forward three years and we you know made a substantial pivot to the business today, which is an online personal styling experience, a premium personal styling experience where we do send you the look, but we send it, you curated a look in a box, which you receive at home for five days and you get to try it on in the comfort of your home and you get to, you know, you purchase the pieces that you like and you return the rest. So what inspired this pivot? What did you see in the market that was shifting or what really made you say, okay, now we need to pivot and this is what we should pivot to? Yeah, so the pivot was definitely one of the biggest entrepreneurial challenges and business challenges that I've gone through. So there there's a lot there and and it's really I think it's it was a really challenging time because you invest so much into a particular business model and thinking like this is it 
and then you know you're in a couple years and to make a pivot you kind of have to start all over again there's a lot of things you have to tear out and so there was a lot of you know i i would say a period of several months where you're you know i was wrestling mentally whether that was the right move mm-hmm. right i mean it was going to be a make or break move almost every pivot is yeah most pivots actually don't work and i think ultimately you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons if I think back on why we made the pivot. But at the end of the day, when I looked at the data and I looked at like, we we had this unique way of selling, which is let's sell you an entire look. But really the, the we still sold it as a transaction. It, was, it wasn't really better than a online catalog because we kind of categorized everything as looks. And so the financial result the data result was we didn't really get a substantially higher basket or AOV repeat purchase behavior wasn't substantially better than a traditional e-commerce catalog. And so for me, when I had my sort of gut check and I looked at it and I was like, well, the business is okay, but I don't think this is essentially like 10x different or better in result for the, for the customer experience or for the business results. And we knew what looks were getting the highest engagement online. And so when we ran a beta to send you that look to the right person, the a stylist in the box, and we told them you can try it on and try on the pieces, that actually was a big game changer in terms of the results that we got and the engagement that we got, right? Like a, there's a lot of reasons why you won't try or buy a look. You know, you don't know if it'll fit. Maybe it only looks like on the model. You don't think you can pull it off. You don't want to go through the hassle. I mean, there's a lot of, you don't know the brand. There's a lot of reasons why you'll like not buy that look. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it's sent to you, there's not a lot of reason where you're like, well, it's here. I'm going to just just try <laughs> right. on this top or try on this bottom. Yeah. Um, you can touch and feel the quality. You can see how it fits. There's no salesperson hovering around to make you feel awkward. Um, You do so in your own lighting. You can mix and match your own pieces at home. So there's a lot of issues that it resolved as it relates to shopping online for apparel and clothes. Yeah. So when we saw that difference in engagement, like we saw right away that the customer was highly engaged and really excited and the purchase rates went up. And so it wasn't a lot of data. Like we started with maybe a dozen customers all being styled manually via Excel and keeping track of things on Excel. But the result was, you know, demonstrably better. And these are people that were previous customers that were buying looks as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like that you created a beta to test, you know, your hypothesis, essentially. Um did you do any other tests to kind of uh, help clarify whether or not you should pivot? I mean, we, we actually ran a beta for, I would say, six months. Wow. Six months. So as the data came in, you know, it helped me feel more confident about making this big strategic sort of all-in bet, I call yeah. it, uh, to to make the pivot. Um. And as the data came in over six months, then we could really see, uh, it wasn't a lot of data points, but we could see sort of the retention engagement after, you know, the third month. 
that these clients really enjoyed the experience and they wanted to continue it on a regular basis. Yeah. And so that the first part of the thesis was, well, if we send people looks that they like, is it going to result in more purchase behavior? You know, higher AOV, um, you know, the, the, the unit economics of, of sending a box. And then the second part of the thesis was, well, is this just a one-time deal? Is it like, oh, it's, it's fun to do this one time or are people really going to want to continue to shop this way? Right. And really that was, then you're talking about retention. Mm -hmm. So in a subscription business, which is the way that, uh, our business model works, you choose a frequency monthly, bi-monthly or quarterly. You choose a date that you like. So it's really all up to you as far as like how often you want to engage with this and receive this experience. But we felt that it was really important if we're going to learn to style you as best as possible and service you well, that we have a some level of commitment in terms of regularity. We can't, you know, effectively style you if we're trying to, if you're asking for one box, you know, a year or two. Moving on to your team, how big is your team now? We have 120 full-time employees here. Awesome. And so talk to me about your hiring kind of learnings. How have you hired the right people and what have you kind of learned along the way? Wow, that's that's a big load. It's so easy to hire the right people, right? Yeah, I've probably made some of the best and worst hiring mistakes here at the company, which I've learned a lot from both. So there was one period of time where the styling business was taking off and we tried to hire 30 stylists in a matter of three or four weeks. And in order to increase the volume that quickly, we also engaged in a outside uh, hiring agency, a recruiting agency to help us. And the big learning there was, I don't think it's possible to uh, to hire quickly with high quality. There was a lot of people that came in that really didn't fit our core values. We didn't screen for core values. We have like a, a, a document of six core values that we look for uh, in every hire that we make, whether it's hourly up to senior management. And ultimately, I think out of that batch of hires, maybe only 10% or so, like a very low number ended up staying and working out. So that was a big hiring mistake. Other hiring mistakes maybe at the more senior level would be related to, you know, not paying attention to um, red flags or reference checks as, as seriously as you should. I would say for reference checks, for example, like they should all come back really, really, really stellar. People that didn't have positive experiences with other coworkers and previous jobs will still tend to give a, you know, a mediocre or medium type of reference check. And so if it comes back anything less than stellar, then that should give a little pause for concern to, to, you know, dig deeper, get, maybe get some more, uh, more reference checks around. Yeah. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. And not even smoke. There might be just, you know, you really have to learn to read in between the lines Mm -hmm. related to hiring and reference checks. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned red flags. What are some of the red flags you think? 
should keep an eye out for. As it relates to hiring? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when it comes to some red flags, I would say people that spend the majority or a lot of time talking about themselves and how great they are and how immediately they can add value without seemingly trying to figure out where's the current state of the business, where are the biggest needs, you know, how are the resources like, what are the biggest challenges to solve. Um, definitely, I think, is, you know, a red flag. Mm-hmm. I've had people who have boasted about how many years of experience they have in, for example, let's say merchandise planning, and we have yet to have a merchandise planner. And so because they've come from a big place with a decade of merchandise planning experience, rather than trying to understand the nuances or differences of this business model, they are really confident that their decade plus years of experience in merchandise planning is going to directly apply to our business as is. Yeah. And so things like that, where essentially people are to some degree a little overconfident in how quickly they can get up to speed could be a red flag. Another one, if they come from big corporate, can be flexibility mm-hmm. in a startup environment. I mean, there's this dance between staying organized and being a little chaotic and lacking structure. And is someone going to be able to come in, deal with being under-resourced in a less structured environment and having to roll up their sleeves and and do everything? Like People always say like, oh, yes, I want to get in the weeds. And maybe I was a former director with a very large team mm-hmm. and I'll still keep my director or, or become a VP. But that means like that actually means you're going to be doing a lot more maybe what you would consider grunt work than, than right. what you had before to do. Right. You know, um, so those those are some of the things that I think are really important from where is this person coming from and what's like how different is the work going to be mm-hmm. and how open and flexible are they uh, to that work? I've seen other red flags being like uh like we, we like to take accountability for, you know, all the successes and failures and, and trials that we run here. And so if someone is really good at talking and, they, and, and they're good at explaining things away or blame shifting, you know, why things have happened and it's blame never, shifting. It's never, I like their, that. it's never their fault and uh-huh. there's always a good reason for it. Yeah. Um, we found that to be, I found that to be a, a red flag. Yeah. Those are all good red flags to look out for. Um, In terms of fundraising, how much capital have you guys raised so far? So we've been very capital efficient, actually. And we've raised uh, $11.5 million for this business. Nice. Overall, basically, or since the pivot? Uh, Overall. Awesome. And so what was that fundraising process like for you? So our early stage was actually fairly uh fairly easy the as we uh grew into this particular business model i think uh the fundraising was harder and i think it was harder for a lot of reasons but primarily uh just the market environment there was a time maybe around between 2011 and 13 where e-com subscription was hot yeah, I remember that time. <laughs> and and when it was hot, 
uh, it was easy to raise right. money. And then I think, you know, there were a bunch of companies that didn't work out or imploded or, and, and maybe even some in spectacular fashion. And so then, you know, the swing, uh, the pendulum swung to the other side where it became a cold category yeah. or deemed that it wasn't going to work. Right. And so it just became a lot more difficult to uh, raise money for a business like this. And then, you know, especially in the VC space, they will move on to something else, like the next shiny new toy. Right. And so if you're not part of that, then it becomes much more challenging. So right. then you got to build a real business, which is kind of what it forced us to do. It's not all that different than, you know, the story of some of our competitors like Stitch Fix, where when you hear of Katrina's journey, who's been incredible, I, she's never described fundraising for her company as easy. It's always It was always very challenging, even though they did very, very well and they yeah. continue to do very well. Yeah. I think now subscription businesses are on the rise again. I think there's a lot of interest, probably because of the success of Stitch Fix, Dollar Shave Club. I mean, there's a lot of success stories now. Yeah, I think it's definitely, I think there's more, um, more interest, more investor interest. I think, you know, thing this you know, as they say in Wall Street, like, you know, you're either in uh, fear or greed territory <laughs> and, and, and it tends to swing back and forth between then. So maybe in 2011 through 13, it was, it was, you know, greed and then it, some things didn't work out and then it turned into fear and yeah. maybe now we're back, back, <laughs> back to greed. greed. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell us about one of the most challenging moments you've had in building Daily Look and how did you overcome it? So the biggest challenge I would say is first surviving the pivot. And I would say that was a big challenge because when we decided to make that pivot fully, you know, we had a team of employees that whose skill sets were for selling a look transactionally. Um, and that meant we shot every day and we had a certain type of creative team and a certain type of warehouse and fulfillment and operations. And so we really had to, you know, restructure the entire company to divest of that business and restructure and, and invest toward the styling business. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a period of a year where that restructuring happened, there was two large layoffs, there was, you know, a restructuring of operations. We used to have a third-party logistics provider do all of our shipping and fulfillment. We had to bring all of that in-house. Mm -hmm. We had to build all of our own technology to build up the styling platform to go from uh, Excel to digital essentially like an online web platform. That was a whole turnaround period and restructuring period that I would say was, was there was a lot going on. Yeah. A lot going on at once to, to get through that period. And then once we got through that period, then there was like the next stage of, okay, we really need to 
figure out the core fundamentals and the unit economics of the styling business and make sure that we can actually build a really high quality user experience Mm -hmm. that was differentiated from, you know, the few competitors that were out there. Yeah. And so the next, that was the next stage where we had to essentially um, track all of our data and turn it into really a data-driven styling platform where, for example, when we first started this business, our conversion rate of, or you can call it our success rate of styling a client where Mm -hmm. we send you a box and you make a purchase was uh, 50%. So for every two boxes we would send out, one client would be really happy. The other client would not purchase anything. So it was a miss. Over the past three years, now our conversion rate or success rate is 80%. Wow. So uh, eight out of 10 clients that we style uh, make a purchase. But not only that, like our average number of items purchased back when we were 50% was about two items. Now we're at uh, three and a half. Wow. So we've made phenomenal progress in accurately being able to style a wide variety of clients at scale mm-hmm. and and ensure that it's a, a great result. Otherwise, it's it's really not worth being in this business because, you know, you're sending a lot of, uh, of, of products to a person to evaluate at home. And you can imagine if you're going to evaluate eight products at home to try on and you make no purchase, well, that means you're going to have to pack up and return eight products. Who likes to return eight products, uh, right. you know, in a big box? Nobody. Right. Yeah. So that's a lot of transition from the pivot. You said it lasted for about a year. What do you think, you know, humans, we're all human. I mean, we make a lot of mistakes just because by default, right? So what is one of the biggest mistakes that you ever made? I think the biggest mistake that I've made are hiring mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think hiring mistakes, uh, when you make them, you need to fix you know, as quickly as possible, as, as painful as they may be and not kick the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's several times where, you know, either I or my co-founder knew we made a hiring mistake and we didn't take care of it as quickly as we could because we had other fears about like, well, who's going to take over this role? We don't have anyone to backfill like tomorrow. Right. So let's just wait until we figure that out or get a backup in place. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, like those hiring mistakes then ended up, you know, causing more and more issues downstream. Right. Right. So, it, it, and, and it's not just with, with, uh, hiring mistakes. I think, you know, I think it relates to co-founders as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start a business, I do recommend that I mean, depending on the business, of course, uh, that you have a co-founder. In my case, I have a technical co-founder and CTO, and we would definitely not be in the position that we are today had I not had a co-founder and CTO. I don't think we could have done what we could have done had we had a, for example, a highly qualified hired CTO. Yeah. Because the amount of sort of battles and tribulations that we've had to go through together over the past couple of years, I don't think that would have lasted mm-hmm. with just a, you know, a hired gun or a 
employee, it really had to have, you really had to have that co-founder relationship. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of co-founder relationships fail for a variety of reasons. Um, In my case, I have had other co-founders in other businesses. And typically for me, it's, it's, you know, misalignment in working style or vision. That's a big one. Um, Strategy where you know, over time there just becomes too much friction or mistrust mm-hmm. or, you know, misalignment in, in, in ways that festers and it just becomes toxic. Yeah, definitely. Being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence and you've gone through a ton of, um, you know, with the pivot and there's a lot, of, it's a bumpy road, right? So what do you do to stay persistent and um, keep you know, reducing stress or just keep focused? I think that's a great question. I think as an entrepreneur, everyone goes through a journey where uh, you're going to go through incredibly stressful and trying times. And I think the, you know, the mental game is, is a challenging one. And with time and experience, I've, you know, learned my ways of how I cope with things in, in challenging times. So there's a lot of different things that, that I would do. Um, you know, physical fitness, I definitely try to do a variety of, of physical workouts regularly, anywhere from one to three times a week. There are definitely periods of time where I went without it. And I, and you might not feel when you, when you're avoiding it, because you're too busy that it's taking a toll. But, um, but I've learned having tried both ways that it actually does. And so I do hit class, you know, I play golf sometimes, uh, more so the range than, than the actual course because of time limitations. Um, I also do different types of yoga. So it really, it actually depends on how my body is feeling and what I feel like I can use, whether I want my heart rate to go up really high or, uh, or whether I feel like I need a more Zen, like, you know, stretching and my body's feeling really tight. Yeah. Do you do, what about like eating or, um, meditation? Meditation. I do sometimes, uh, with the help of a few apps like Headspace. Uh, but I wouldn't say I'm a daily meditator, Mm -hmm. but I can also tell when I need, uh, need that 10 minute, uh, you know, meditative session. And usually that's like during work, like on Mondays where you've gone through so many different, uh, where you've had to use your brain really, really hard (laughs) on solving different issues and going and switching gears multiple times. And then I'll be like, okay, I need a 10 minute break and I'll meditate. Mm-hmm. That's helped. Um, sometimes when I lack energy, I'll do a 30 to 30, uh, no, a 30 hour fast. A 30 hour fast. Yeah. 30 hour fast. Uh, n- no food except uh, water or liquids, but no, no, no calories. 30 hour caloric fast. Yeah. And that makes you feel better. Yeah, believe it or not. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm always up for trying 
like new things. And I would not say I'm someone that, you know, fasts every week, but I would say I fast once or twice a month. Uh, and I first tried it just out of curiosity, you know, just reading about different types of, you know, techniques like physical techniques mm -hmm. and, and, and biohacking. And so I was like, okay, I'll try, try this. And the first time I tried it, I actually felt amazing energy for the next three or four days. Like I had a, like I had the most amazing workout. And so the first time I thought maybe it was a fluke, it was just <laughs> coincidental or, <laughs> and, and then, so then I, I did it again the following week and, and I had the same feeling. And so then I did it again the third week. I said, okay, the third time, if, if I feel the same high level of energy for the next, you know, three or four days, then this is not a fluke. And sure enough, I did. So then I was like, okay, this, this is just another, I, I think tool in the, in the tool set that I have, uh, to stay at a, you know, mentally high performing level. If I feel like my energy level is, is going down. And I think it just gives your body a break. Like, you yeah. Know, um, I mean, there's actually a lot of science behind it and you can look it up as far as, um, I think it's called, you know, put your body in a state of, uh, autophagy. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and so it's a lot, it's not about, um, it's not, it has nothing to do with, uh, trying to lose weight mm -hmm. or dieting. It's really about, um, giving your body a rest and actually triggering autophagy that I think has the main health benefits. Interesting. Cause when I think of doing a 30 hour fast, I imagine myself after 30 hours, just devouring as much food as possible and then wanting to sleep. <laughs> so how is it that you, what do you, is, are you supposed to like eat a certain way after the 30 hour fast? No, actually. So the way I do it is I usually will start and have my last meal at 5 PM on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then you don't eat for the next 24 hours, which then puts you at 5 p.m. the following day. And mm -hmm. then you have another six hours. And so, yes, then you eat, let's say, around 11 p.m. on Monday. And, and that would give you about a 30-hour fast. Mm -hmm. So the 11 p.m. meal, I would eat just a, a normal meal that I would eat at home. Mm -hmm. um, I'm generally not like... You know, it's not like a cheat meal. You're not like eating. counting down. You're like, okay, I've got 45 minutes left. <laughs> no, you know, to be honest, uh, so the, the hardest, the, the hump for me is, uh, on Monday between our, between like noon and three or four, once you pass that, it's, it's easy. I think I can probably actually go to sleep that night and still eight in the morning. And so once you pass that, you kind of mentally have like sort of made it mm -hmm. where for me, that was always the hardest time. And like, after I passed that, it, it's not too bad. Yeah. Interesting. I've done like juice cleanses and stuff like that, where you're not really supposed to eat, you're supposed to have just green juice full yeah. on for like seven to 10 days or something crazy. I've, I've actually never done any of those other sort of cleanses or, you know, I've never done any of those clean cleanses or fad diets. I think partially because they're, they're positioned as like, you know, diets or cleanses. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, I eat fairly clean and mm -hmm. I don't feel the need to, you know, go through this cleanse. But this other thing was really more about energy and autophagy, which is supposed to, you know, trigger, uh, increased cell turnover. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, that was interesting to try. 
Awesome. Interesting. I'll give it a shot. We'll let you know how it goes. I tell everyone they should try it once. It's not as hard as it looks. And, you know, the, the proof is in the results. Like, how do you feel the next three or four days? Because for me, it, it, the results have, you know, I felt great for the next like three or four days. Like I said, as if I had done like two amazing workouts. Wow. That's awesome. I'm really going to hold you to this. I'm going to let you know. Really try it and let me know how it works for you. I know. Okay. Um, so what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? I think fashion and retail is a, you know, it's a pretty uh, competitive, dynamic, changing landscape. So, you know, it, I mean, even in the past couple of years, there's been lots of high profile uh, retailers that have gone out of business. And so it's, it's a, it's a challenging landscape. Yeah. So, you know, just not to underestimate um, the amount of continued challenges and that, that the category has uh, just lots of changes. Yeah. And so you're saying just to be able to prepare yourself more for those challenges, just knowing if you would have known. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting that, you know, the people that have gone into this, you know, that have in, innovated in the personal styling category, like none of the founders actually came from traditional retailer or fashion. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I think we all didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Yeah. What did you think you were going to get into and what actually did you get into? You know <laughs> I, what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I, the, for that, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an, a good answer. Like, did um, you imagine it to be different and then realized, oh, wait, this is a much more emotional business than I thought, or it's a much more, you know. I guess when I, if I think about when I started the business, I was really starting from the mission and the solution. And so you have that, that vision that you're, you know, building a product experience around to solve. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, I mean, there's just, there's so many types of, of people and customers, body types that, you know, you have to be really focused in who you're provide, you know, who your end customer is, who you're providing this product experience for, and just, just kind of stick to your guns. Cause you can't be all things to all, all people. You have to stay focused. It's not going to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and so really sort of planting your stick of, of, you know, the brand and the customer that you want to serve and just staying really hyper-focused to that, I think was something that I would have, um, you know, liked to have known in hindsight Yeah. Um, versus being a little more, you know, ethereal. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what are some um, limiting beliefs that you had to overcome to get to where you are today? It could be limiting beliefs about business, about your capabilities, just kind of any limiting belief you may have had early on in starting your business that changed over time. I don't know if it, I would call it a limited belief, but I think as an entrepreneur, there are always 
going to be moments and periods of self doubt.、Mm-hmm. Self doubt in, you know, it could be anything from maybe, you know, this business isn't going to work out, or maybe you're not the right person to win in this business or do really well, or maybe you don't have the right skill sets, the right team. I mean, there's, you know, as an entrepreneur, self doubt can creep in from. Many different angles and places and times,、mm-hmm. and I think mentally that that that's a challenging,、um, you know, some a, a challenging thing that every entrepreneur has to、yeah. deal with and self reflect on, because you know at the same time you don't want to be an entrepreneur that's delusional. Like I'm not gonna, I'm 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 not a biotech entrepreneur. I'm not gonna create, you know, cure、uh, cancer, for example.、Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, see some examples,、uh, some spectacular、uh, failures. Like what is that?、Uh, um, Theranos. Yeah, <laughs> you can see some spectacular failures like Theranos, where I think there were definitely,、um, you know, some delusions of. Grandeur as far as being an entrepreneur and what you can do or will to happen,、mm-hmm. and you know you have to balance that with the harsh reality of what is actually happening, right? Or, or what are the results that you're seeing? And so there's just always that fine line that you're you're walking. Yeah. Did you ever question like early on, am I the right founder to do this business? Did you ever question that or no? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm. I'm,、uh, I'm, a ma- a man in a woman's business. I've never been in the fashion business, um. So there's lots of reasons, like very obvious reasons, where one would question, like, well, why, why is this person, um, the right founder to be successful in this business or category? You know,、yeah. I don't, I don't particularly have deep domain experience or didn't come from one in this category. Yeah. And so over time, obviously, you've proven yourself and everyone else that you are the right person to do this business. So how did that kind of shift for you as a leader?、Uh, you know, over time, as you as the business grows and you see,、um, you know, you see really smart people that you respect、uh, look at the business and and、uh, you know validate the things that you're doing. You, you do gain, you know. Support and confidence in the decisions that you're making, the team that you're building, and you know, you, and ultimately you see it in the financials. Like we, we achieved a full year profitability,、um, which was a big milestone for us. Yeah,、and、that's awesome. So from that point forward, we kind of knew that you know we we were able to control our own destiny.、Mm-hmm. That this wasn't some sort of、um, pipe dream of. You know, raise endless amounts of capital, and at some point, you know, the business will be sustainable or work out. Yeah,、um, we kind of demonstrated that pretty early on, and so that that does give you quite a bit of security and confidence、mm-hmm. that yes, you've built a real business, it works,、mm-hmm. um, and and you're not drinking your own Kool Aid, as they say. <laughs> like as an entrepreneur,、um, you know, you got to be car- a little bit careful to not drink too much of your own. Right,、Kool-Aid. you have to be humble so that you're not humbled. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> Absolutely. Or, or you will inevitably be, right. yeah, be humbled uh, by external events. Exactly. I just like to talk about the self-doubt perspective a little bit because I feel like a lot of aspiring founders, you know, I think that they maybe think that founders are these trailblazers that never are faced with self-doubt. Right. But we're we're human. We have these thoughts about ourselves. And as we grow with our business, those start to change. Um, so I always like to bring that up. So how do you work to improve yourself so that you can best lead your company? You know, I think I, I try to maintain the perspective and mindset of being, you know, a lifelong learner and always intellectually curious and open to learning new things, you know, learn from new people around you as far as like, you know, managing, managing people is a, a really hard one that I think most young founders, especially myself, um, are not naturally born with. Like, you know, you don't spend your childhood managing or trying to manage teams of people and diverse people, especially. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a new skill set that almost every uh, CEO has to learn to become good at and grow and master. Yeah. Um, what kind of characteristics do you think make up a great founder? What do you think it takes? I think it actually depends on on the business. I don't, you know, I've met lots of different types of founders from different backgrounds. And I think that, you know, there's no one size fits all type of founder. I know that, you know, VCs like to sort of have a checklist, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, to kind of check the box and uh, pattern match for what a good founder looks like. But if you really look at you know, iconic founders that have done extraordinarily, you know, well that everyone reads about, I think they're all incredibly different. I mean, you can take the, you know, Sarah Blakely to the Howard Schultz to the Phil Knights and, you know, read all their stories. And I, I don't think that there is a particular um, characteristic, although I think I think one is probably, you know, everyone is a incredibly hard worker. Everyone is incredibly driven. Like if mm -hmm. you don't, if you lack drive and you don't work hard, I don't see how you would be a great founder. Yeah. And um, focusing. It's yes. Yeah. Incred they're incredibly passionate and focused on, you know, whatever they're you know, building their respective businesses and what they're building. Yeah. Cause it's easy to kind of want to expand maybe too fast when you don't have the resources right away. And I think we're always thinking ahead, you know, a couple of years in advance. Um, so yeah, staying focused on what you have in terms of capabilities and resources and time and funding and all of those things. Yeah. I, I could definitely relate to that. You know, it's been a lot of entrepreneurs are, you know, creative types, create, mm -hmm. have lots of ideas. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, startups are about constraints or working within constraints and, and being able to execute on them really, really well. And so it's easy to get lost in too many ideas or, you know, you raise a big round of funding and all of a sudden um, those previous ideas that you had, you know, you had a lot of ideas now can potentially become reality. So it yeah. becomes enticing and interesting to, you know, for example, expand really quickly or go international or, you know, expand horizontally or vertically. I mean, there's so many things in your mind that could be better um, which, you know, most of, a lot of times, you know, aren't as easy as it looks. Definitely. So what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Um, I mean, there are so many resources, I think, nowadays. Uh, if you're looking to be an entrepreneur, there's so many different, you know, entrepreneurial influencers and books that you can read about uh to understand what you're getting yourself into mm -hmm. i think i think having a clear plan and you know having as much um no scratch that okay <laughs> um so I, I don't know that that question is too open ended where I feel like it really depends on your age, you know, and, and your your industry and, and, and sort of like what kind of entrepreneur you're looking to be. Um, you know, there, there's lots of different types of entrepreneurs like you don't have to be a VC backed entrepreneur. You don't have to be a moonshot entrepreneur. You can be a small business entrepreneur. You can be a food and beverage entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's you know, you can be a shark tank entrepreneur, right? <laughs> there's, there's just, there's so many different types of entrepreneurs in different categories that I feel like, you know, there's no advice that I can give that would sort of be one size fits all other than I think that there's been a lot of, you know, transparency that's been brought to the process of starting a business um, and to, you know, really learn and understand like what kind of business that you want to build what's the end goal like if you're raising vc money it's a total different different end goal and expectation than friends and family or other types of growth plans and 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 not i, I think there's been probably a little too much emphasis or sort of glory placed on the hyper growth um backed companies and entrepreneurs that have kind of um, turned them into rock stars versus look the majority of 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 you know great founders and and businesses you know grew over you know decades yeah. like i mean you look at a company like ikea i think the founder you know passed away not too long ago but that that you know, there are stories like Zara and Ikea that are incredible stories of entrepreneurship that occurred in a different era, but that absolutely dominate today. Yeah, totally. That's really interesting. So long and steady. I think long and steady. I mean, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, it's, it's, it's probably going to be a longer path than a, a, you know, a quick uh, rags to riches story. Right. 
I mean, th- those occur, but I think that's more, um, that's more the exception than the rule. Sure. It's something you read right. about every day, but, but it's most of the time I'd say the, the exception. Yeah, I agree. And we're yet constantly reading about the, you know, right, the stars and these huge success stories. But there's so many businesses that have been operating over time that are doing super well as well. They're just not talked about in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what's the future look like for Daily Look? Anything exciting you can share with us? So we are at a place where we're uh, scaling the business this year. We're looking to add about 60 new employees this year. 60? 60. Wow. Uh, we, you know, we, we've built out our styling platform, everything, you know, our core economics are really well, are strong, our retention is strong. So we're really looking to scale the business in a big way this year. We're excited. We just launched our first uh, TV campaign. Amazing. Uh, two weeks ago. So we're pretty excited about the the early results that we're seeing there. So mm-hmm. really the next stage for us is to break out as a premium uh, brand, a premium styling experience. Mm-hmm. We think there's a lot of opportunity there that um, that is being unmet. And this is a growing category, a growing space, a new way to shop that more and more people are uh, getting comfortable and familiar with. And so really see a lot of growth ahead of us. Cool. Well, thanks so much for giving me a tour of your awesome office and showing me around. And it's pretty incredible to see. And thanks for your time on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for making the trek down (laughs) to the Los Angeles uh, Arts District area. Um, of course. Visit us. Of course. And hopefully your first podcast interview went well for you. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I, I did enjoy it. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until